Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Babak Atishamipour, a sound and visual artist based in Athens, Greece. In Babak's words, his practice is based on the collision of the virtual versus actual, aimed at correlating topics from cyberspace to ecology and politics to identity, exploring them via MMORPGs, video games, internet and pop culture while focusing on themes of coexistence and simultaneity. I think those last two words, coexistence and simultaneity, really jumped out of me when I first discovered Babak's music, the album Spectre, Spectrum, Speculum on Industrial Coast, and then after that, the record Mind, Flaying, Flavoured Flails on Jollies. Both of these records, while the first has more melodic elements and also the voice more prominently, and the latter has more harsh electronics, both have this deliberate sense of confoundment, these elements that exist alongside each other that kind of jar. There's this sense of trying to writhe away and ridicule the top-down powers of categorization and structure that try and impose themselves on Babak. This sense of self-contradiction and lots of humour as well, lots of cartoonish energy as well driving these pieces. It's really good fun. And something that's enhanced that experience is the virtual exhibition accompanying Mind Flayer Mind <laughs> for God's sake. Mind Flaying Flavoured Flails. Which was made in collaboration with Nathan Harper. Features music from the record, but also artworks created by both Babak and Nathan. You can navigate around, there's these separate galleries uh, where you can examine various artworks which really expand the universe of that record. It's really cool. I'll include links to the record, to Babak's site, and to the virtual exhibition in the show notes. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Babak as much as I did. Three really different records. I feel like they all encapsulate Babak's quality of assimilating elements that maybe try and pull away from each other at the same time. So if you're enjoying crucial listening firstly thank you you can support the podcast over at coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening where you can donate one off or monthly any amount that feels right to you just to help keep the show ticking cover those few expenses and to account for the time spent putting everything together otherwise i hope you enjoy this episode like i say Thank you for tuning in as always. This is Babak Atishamipour on Crucial Listening. Hello, Babak. Welcome to Crucial Listening. 
Hey Jack, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. So we're here to talk about your three important records that you've picked for this podcast. Before we get into those though, I want to talk about your new album, Mind Flaying Flavoured Flells. Had a couple of rehearsals of saying that. Uh, and that's your new album on Jollies that came out end of last year. So this comes only a few months after Spectre, Spectrum, Speculum on Industrial Coast. I know that proximity in release dates doesn't always correlate to being produced at a similar time, but aesthetically there's definitely a lot of continuities that I'm receiving from my end when I'm listening to these records. But I thought I'd ask you what are the aspects of this new record that remain consistent and what are the aspects that you have pushed in a new direction like where, where do you see the similarities kind of beginning and ending between this and, and the last record both of them were recorded like uh, six months difference I think hmm. like Spectrum Spec- Spectre Spectrum Spectrum was recorded in May 2021 and Mind Flame Flavor Fails was recorded in November of 2021. Basically, both of them were like a lot of old ideas I had. And I used to play more like uh, free improvisational music and just noise and kind of stuff. And with like a piano, bass guitar, and I would like record this kind of similar ideas. But after a while, I was more into like electronics and to be able to play everything with a laptop and not with instruments, but I was really tired of carrying stuff around. <laughs> yeah. And so I started reco- taking those ideas and listening to different uh, genres of music that was similar, like artists like uh, Ryuji Sakamoto, Jason Nazari, any other artist of that that is not coming right now in my mind that mm. was trying to blend electroacoustic uh, instrument electroacoustic approach with physical instruments and electronics in a semi improvisational uh, approach which basically it's like they have an open form composition which it has a structure, but it's very fluid and it would come out different every time they would perform it. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that and some of the ideas of Spectre, Spectrum, Spectrum came there. But I also had very specific ideas to have as compositions that I cannot perform live. For example, the first track of the album and the last track are like purely, purely composition and I cannot perform them live because as so many layers of recordings and overdubs with extended techniques on piano and uh, electric guitar and other stuff. Hmm. So I did that. I also used voice and um, I used to sing a lot and I would like cover really high rate, high rate of octaves and vocals because I really like like manipulating the vo- uh, voice to sound like something that it's not supposed to sound like. Yeah. I remember like I had this obsession over Mike Patton and the singer from Mars Volta for, because they had this like really weird techniques for voice and whenever I, I would put them to 
friends of mine to listen to them. They were like, dude, that's not how a man's voice should sound like. I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, that's what, that's why it's so nice because it's breaking the norms and it's not based on mm-hmm. heteronormatics and all this kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I experimented around that and three of the tracks all Spectra, Spectrum, Spectrum had vocals as well. But I'm very shy as a person in real life, so I'm not very comfortable performing vocals live, you know? Mm. Uh, in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so I, st- I, st- I said to myself, you know, I cannot, I cannot be doing this anymore. And uh, since it also bothers the neighbors, like if I'm screaming, <laughs> all- <laughs> While I'm practicing Mars Water tracks, or uh, <laughs> I'm trying to make my sound, my voice sound goofy and like a cartoon, and like my <laughs> neighbors are like, "What the fuck is this guy?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I stopped it, and I was like, "It's okay." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, then I was like, "Okay, how I continue from Spectre Spectrum Spectrum to another album?" and Basically, how I started, I, I never had any uh, connection to electronic music. Like when I was growing up, I was listening to mostly prog rock, jazz fusion, and afterwards, like very indie rock and math rock. Like I, I grew up listening to a lot of heavy metal as well, like and thrash metal, like Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and then went into 70s program, program like uh, King Crimson, Caravan, Yes, Genesis, all this kind of stuff. And then Soft Machine, Coltrane, Miles Davis, and all this kind of stuff. And then uh-huh. all this, I was trying to, how how the hell am I going to blend all these things to one genre, you know? <laughs> it's like so many different things. And then afterwards, I discovered math rock, like bands like Hella, Terra Mellos, or noise rap bands like Lightning Bolt, hmm. those kind of artists. And I was playing in a band at that time, it was around 2003. And I had my own band, I was playing bass guitar, singing, and we were trying to experiment in that direction. But that band disbanded. So I was like, I cannot continue to be in a band since I'm very interested in experimenting. And since I didn't have I wanted to to do as a solo artist stuff. I didn't have any connection to electronic music. I met some guys who had this uh, bar or uh, cultural event kind of bar uh, and it called right in the city, Hanya and Crete, which I was studying. Mm-hmm. And friends. And I would they would ask me to open in 2019 for the artist help, you know, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Luke. yeah. Yeah. So I opened, opened for him and they were like, oh. I was like, dude, how, what am I supposed to do? And they were like, we don't <laughs> bring your pedals and your synth and just do noise, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started, you know? My first uh, wow. uh, touch with electronic music and uh, specifically experimental electronic music. So I started listening to more of that kind of artists. Like Lawrence English, Oren Ambarchi, um, Shelter Press, Room 40, this kind of record uh, uh, labels. 
And I've always felt like I've never done such anything like music wise in that direction, like more drone or more ambient or more harsh noise. I've always had this playful, more uh, combination of physical instruments with electronics, but not a focus mostly on electronics, mm-hmm. with like the more conventional way. So I decided to do my thing flavors with that direction of like, if I would ever be doing like something ambient, strong, repetitive, that's how I would do it. And because I'm self-taught and I, I don't have like a formal training in this kind of things, whenever I try to copy or approach something which I, I felt, I fail, I fail so badly that it becomes, it becomes something on itself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, that, that was uh, the difference between spectra, spectrum, spectrum. It was like a, um, a transition from me from my old self to my new self mm. to a more like uh, down to earth and focused on just electronic music from now on. Wow, that's very cool. I've been having the best time with the record, and I think. One thing that's really enhanced my experience of it has been this virtual exhibition that you did to accompany mm-hmm. the record alongside Nathan Harper. Um, there seems to be quite a lot of the overlap between yourself and Nathan that makes everything very coherent, but at the same time, because you have got this very splayed energy on the record, it's nice that you've also got another mind dragging the world of the record outside of your own aesthetic palette as well that's cool but also um for people listening it's like i think it's you you put it as like five virtual galleries right which contain works from yourself and nathan that you can navigate around on this kind of alien planet and view all these these works and you've got the album playing as you do so so tell me a bit about why or how uh, the idea of a virtual exhibition came up in order to kind of extend the world of mind flaying flavored flails. How did that come about? Yeah, um, basically, things like for Spectrum, 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 I could make a video like for the first track since it had lyrics, and lyrics always inspire me to give me direction for videos. Mm. The album didn't have any tracks with lyrics or like any like lyrical input for me. So I was like, how the hell am I going to do something that it's connected to my visual artist aspect as well? Hmm. And I remember Radiohead had done this Kid A Amnesia exhibition. I don't know if you remember that. It was a game. Yeah. So yeah, I I had already done another virtual exhibition with Nathan called The Lost Woods in May on the same platform, New Art City. And I, I approached him and I told him, okay, I have this idea and I want to make five points, which are like each track of the album and it's five rooms and the tracks are playing in based on the titles of the work. Mm. We can create installations. And we used old works of ours because of the idea of the album, which is most a lot. It has a lot to do with technocracy and climate crisis denial and all this kind of stuff. We use like old works to because they are like in ecology, the free arts, re, re, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Mm. Mm-hmm. The same thing goes. 
somehow with artificial intelligence as well, which is like a really old trend in the recent years. And it's connected with ecological footprint and technocracy, for sure. Mm. And Nathan, the works I used for, from Nathan, these are like uh, these dirt printed uh, prints and paintings. They were like made with pigment he made with uh, actual dirt. So right, it was very, yeah. Very like a bold statement, you know? Mm. Put it in a virtual digital uh, space, in cyberspace, and, but it's like something so organic in mm. contrast to the digitalization of it. And yeah, that's how, that's, that's basically why I did, because I wanted to make a representation of a visual representation of the album as well. And since the tracks were very abstract and I felt like they don't have a beginning, middle or end, they were like just something that's happening. Hmm. I felt like they could also be tracks that they can be playing like a soundscape for a movie or like in a gallery space. Yes. Yeah. Wicked, that's great, yeah. Um, one last question I wanted to ask in relation to the virtual exhibition, which is something that really struck me, is when you have particular works by yourself where you've got what I assume is the original, like where they're um, on canvas, for example, you've got these digital renderings of the on-canvas work, and then next to these works you've got the three-dimensional version. There's a really interesting thing going on there because it feels like that there's almost like a, a an intentional redundancy. It's like the both of them are lifts of an original work. They're both copies of an original. There's the 2D one, which isn't the original because it's in this virtual space, and then a three-dimensional rendering. So I wonder if you could tell me about your decision to three-dimensionalize some of these original 2D artworks? Um, I didn't have this, that kind of an approach in my mind when I was... <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting, you know? But basically, how that started is, was like, I did this series of paintings in 2021, I think, um, which we exhibited the previous exhibition with Nathan, and they were like other kind of paintings. These were like animal paintings. So the other one were like monster paintings and inspired from video game characters. Hmm. So I was like, since you know, video games are have like 3D dimension to them. I was like, I was remembering like a lot of uh, boss levels in Super Mario or Crash Bandicoot, which. Besides, like, there was a 3D version of the character, there was also, like, a somehow, like, a painting of them somewhere, you know? Yeah. Like a sacred, ritualistic way. And that's how, like, uh, I thought of myself of, like, having, like, a tarot card, you know? Imagine right. tarot being a 3D version of it. It's like... Uh, what the one... It's like the one thing... The, the, the 2D work... 2D mate is commenting the 3D and the and vice versa. Mm. Uh, or like it gave it gave me a more like a, an extra depth to the whole work for me. Mm. And I also what I used to do is was like I would create 
augmented reality and in the app or like an Instagram filter, you will go with your camera on one of the paintings and you will see the 3D version appearing over it. Cool. So, oh, that's, yeah. that's wicked. Yeah, it's basically trying to blend like physical with uh, physical space with cyberspace somehow. Because all the topics I work are related to those things, like uh, how like digitalization and cyberspace has penetrated in everyday life, and what what sort of effects and effects has on human beings, and not mm-hmm. only. So that's why like this exhibition used these animals because like the bear, the shark, the rabbits, the, the deer, because like. I'm trying to explore this topic of uh, the commodification of organic beings by the capitalist system and by consumerism as well. Because mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm a vegan years now. <clears throat> and yeah, I see like digitalization has nothing to do with uh, human beings alone. It's very material based, it's very toxic, it's, it's clouding and uh, Digitally and anything that has to do with the internet sounds very immaterial, but in reality, it's very material based and it's from, from like the counterparts from the computers, from the electronics, all this kind of stuff are from mines, from chemical reactions mm. that creates waste, emissions, warehouses, field servers that are overheating all, all day, they are working. And this, all this kind of stuff affect the environment around them, the, the, the ecosystem, other beings besides like human beings and stuff. So, yeah. Fabulous. Thank you for giving a bit of conceptual insight as well. I realise this intro discussion is always, it feels fleeting. <laughs> um, I really hope that that, whets people's appetite to go in and check out both the record and the exhibition. Is the exhibition going to stay there permanently, Babak? If I link in the show notes, will it be there for people yeah, to check out? It stays forever. Amazing. It's, it's forever. That's great. So I will link to both of those. They're wonderful. Uh, people, please go check them out. But we should go to your important records now, Babak. So one question I like to ask about this point is how you thought about the word important when picking your list of three records. So was there a way that you understood importance in order to come up with the list of three records that you did? So, yeah, I had this kind of approach in my head. Like I wouldn't, like there are many important records, like to a certain degree, object, objectively speaking, music wise, like Kide is an important record, for example. Right. right, yeah. Or 21st, uh, in the court of the Crimson King. Like, these are like, or Master of Puppets from Metallica. These are like important records, like, mm. objectively speaking. So I was like, yeah, those, I, they don't need the audience for me to point that out, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to pick some records that have really been important to me, like how they have shaped my practice and my identity as an artist and as a person. And they are not really well known or they are not considered yet and like uh, historically or academically speaking important records. Mm. So yeah, I picked those three. Uh, the first one is, uh, and I, I picked them based on like 
who I was, who I am, and who I want to be. Wow. So, like, like Midi Schlagel, I can't prefer that, I think Schlagelheim. <laughs> Schlagelheim, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like who, where I was, like uh, in the math rock scene and the noise rock and all this kind of weird stuff. And then now I am like with um, Spectrum, Spectrum, Speculum, and Mind Flame Flavors in, in the area of uh, Sakamoto's Async that album, like, was groundbreaking for me. And where I want to be is like in the future musically and how to combine that with my visuals. It's like Machine Gears, like Hugo, it's synthesizer. But I'm trying to blend a lot of my metal and uh, rock and electronic and very like uh, pop kind of things with my more like serious academic stuff. Awesome. That's a really nice little flavor. Which one do you want to go for first? Um, I think with uh, Black Midi's one. Wicked. Yeah, so Schlagenheim. Can you yeah. give me a little... I mean, you've given a little taster there. This is uh, important in relevance to your relationship with math rock and adjacent genres. So give me a little introduction as to why this one is, is the important one for you. But basically, I don't know if like uh, this specific album is considered math rock, um, like, right? Uh, uh, but it's somehow a continuation. It sounds a continuation to me. Like it sounds a lot of like slint, for example. Mm-hmm. It also has some odd riff. It also has a lot of post punk and noise rock in it. But I, I've noticed a lot of math rock fans tend to like that. This band specifically in uh, this album. And there's their next albums are more like prog, prog rock right, rather than like a math rock. Hmm. I didn't know Black Midi back then, like when they were first playing before like this album was released. So a friend of mine who was who knew that I write I like like weird stuff, you know. He pointed this out this track BM BM BM. Hmm. I think it's like not the last track, it's like before the last track of the album. And I saw them perform that in KEXP live. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like in, in this sense of what the fuck, it was like in a positive way. Like how the hell are they, they he's just playing one note. He's like semi-improvising the vocals. He has a phone on his pickup on the guitar and rip. A recording is coming out and so creative just with things so chaotic and simple all these things at the same time hmm. so and because it was not like math rock like structures and oh now we play this now we play that and all drifts and stuff it was very fluid and it was very sentimental rather than like uh, strict and you have to work with your brain while you're playing the guitar and thing. I was blown mm-hmm. away. It was like they're combining all this kind of stuff that I I was all these years trying to understand how I can do them, you know? And mm-hmm. each track of the album is so different from the other one, but they maintain a certain aesthetic, which is like their language. And that's why that's one of the things I truly admire in an artist to have their own language but with references 
and with a lot of surprises. One of the things like I picked these three albums and it's a discussion I have with a friend of mine is like, I really get sentimental and emotional and blown away from a record, from, from an artist in general. And the ones I get is the ones that are completely, you, you cannot predict what you're going to hear. And that's what, mm-hmm. the, what makes me like really to get stuck and uh, obsessed over a record. And I think like all these three records I picked have that aspect to them. It's like from one moment of a track or from one track to another track, you don't know what you're going to hear, but you have a sort of like a vibe or aesthetic, which is the artist aesthetic. This one is really interesting as well, because I think out of all of them, there's something about Black Midi which seems to chime with the alternative mainstream music press like they got a lot of traction they seem to be everywhere at some point particularly in the uk press uh, you'd hear about them you know they, they were on bbc6 music they, you know they had big articles on them and stuff and yet there was a push pull going on because the word i kept seeing coming up in reviews was frustrating or pretentious which is like words that often get bandied at experimental music but I think because they have one foot in this space which feels quite accessible people were lured into black midi and then having to deal with the difficult elements of them too which makes them quite slippery I I, I like that about them but is frustration a word that chimes with your experience of Black Midi and this record, or not? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, for sure, like, I really like albums that are hard to listen, and it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm a masochist in some sort of degree. <laughs> Like I remember, because it, it somehow it's relevant. I remember first uh, discovering Mr. Bundy and mm. uh, as well from uh, Mike Patton. And I wasn't understanding the thing. And at first I was like, what the fuck is this so bad? And <laughs> But at the end I've got obsessed and I would like, it, it was some sort of a, like a, it was called the syndrome, uh, imposter syndrome, like, Right. I, I I hated it, but I loved it as well. So I would like get back to it and get back to it and get back to it. It would be so frustrating, but at the end I loved it, you know? I was trying to persuade myself around it. And I think that's how like people have been around Black Minute. Like I remember putting Black Minute to a lot of my friends who are like more, more into like conventional ways of music and especially mm-hmm. like instrumental based music. And they were like, yeah, this sucks. I don't like it. It's very repetitive. Oh, this sucks. And after years now, they're all uh, as well obsessed. Just because <laughs> I, That's great. <laughs> just because I persuaded them, like, hey, give it another chance. Give it another, another chance. Give it another. <laughs> you know? It's like uh, you have to be able to give it a chance and be open to it and try to step back and stop projecting how you think and how you understand just accept what it is and listen to it mm. and then you, and then you see and i think that's what's happening with the press and the reviews with black Midi 
in general and any other kind of like uh, band or artists for example death groups yes and it's, it's like uh, a love or, love or hate situation i think and it's because people are in the reviewers and the press it's like uh, they're not like stepping back and just chilling like okay let's wait let's listen and we get back to it See, and i think that's happening because they have this kind of foot in the pop sphere and they are not actually also with death grips and light and lightning bolt as well hmm. so they're trying to bring it avant-garde in the pop and sphere and it's very hard for people to digest that because people are short um they i think due to like the era we're living with like a digitalization and social media people we all have like a short attention span so stuff that is not catching in heart at first glance we would mm-hmm. be like no no refused x bye-bye <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure yeah that's the thing i guess as well the modus operandi of a lot of reviewing can be is this good rather than let's attempt to understand it so exactly yeah. to, you know i critique. don't understand why things have to be good you know i, I i'm <laughs> yeah I'm more like things have to be what they are mm-hmm. good or bad that's that's subjective and it follows a symbolic structure of hierarchy and social and social and social norms so you mentioned bm 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 was the first one you came into how, how do you have a favorite track on this record are there ones that really stick out as being yeah that you you connect with particularly strongly yeah, my favorite track, I think it's the first, like, 953 or 953. Mm. Yeah, it's like this uh, This main riff, it's, like, mind-blowing. And I think it's, like, so simple, but so elegant and so punk and so punchy. And it's, like, a, a lot of contradictory things together at once. Mm-hmm. And all these differences in, like, a stops and and fast tempos it makes it like uh it reflects to myself a lot because i in during the day i have so many mood things <laughs> <laughs> so yeah let's track is like that but i also like other tracks as well but the thing is like with, with these albums i cannot distinguish a, fa- a favorite track for sure because i feel like they are the whole album is one track you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah for sure um, it's definitely a record that, as I listen to it more, um, or as I, I as I first listened to the record, rather, my perception of what the record was was continually overturned by each subsequent track, um, which yeah makes them all essential to listen to together. Right, you keep getting your mind flipped uh, in terms of what the record is yeah. capable of or where its arena is. Did you have a favorite track? Did I have a favorite track? Yeah. <laughs> um, probably do you know what probably that first one as well I reckon because I mean I think the drummer is astonishing there's a fill that they do on that first track where it's just rim shots and like the it almost feels like they're accidentally missing the skin every time it's got this real calamitous feel to it it's wonderful so I've just got a lot of pleasure from hearing that drummer do their thing yeah 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 that, that's I know which point, which point on the track you're talking about. <laughs> and that's another thing now that came to my mind about this record and this kind of approaches in music. It's like 
honesty and vulnerability. They see they are showing like, hey, we don't care about perfectionism and we don't care about sounding like what society wants us. We just do what I what we want, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We, we fail and we like to show that we are human beings and we fail. <laughs> An eye for an eye But you are just too lazy It is purely fantasy And it takes all quick Everyone joins in And it is condemned It is a sin It is a sin Wicked, well, but back, let's go to your second important record now So, which one do you want to go for next? Um, I think Sakamoto's, uh, I think. Nice, nice. So, as yeah. with Schlagenheim, could you give me a little introduction as to why this one is important to you? Okay. Um, in that period of time, I was that I discovered Sakamoto. I was. It was 2019. Somebody might listen to that, which I said was 2019. They say, "How the hell did you discover Sakamoto?" 2019. <laughs> I know, I know. You you are justified, uh, honestly. I feel guilty. But I have something worse to say. I what? hadn't I hadn't listened to Radiohead. <laughs> wow, really? Wow. Yeah, and I started listening to Radiohead backwards, like from their last album to up to OK Computer. And huh. I couldn't move backwards anymore. I, I couldn't stand the rock stuff they did before. <laughs> I barely could listen to OK Computer. And I'm not saying that because I, I consider them any bad albums. I mean, it's just I, 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 I was very more into different kind of rock mu- music that mm-hmm. was in the 90s. So I, I was listening to, I was trying to see this aspect of mine, how to blend rock and my background with like electronics. So Radiohead was a good introduction for me with Kid A, The King of Lanes, and The Moon-Shaped Pool. Hmm. And I started playing piano. I didn't know how to play piano. I also was listening a lot of free jazz and Cecil Taylor and experimenting with piano. And was like, okay, who, who, any other pianists I need to check? So I asked a friend, he was like, yeah, you should check Sakamoto. Like, okay, who is that guy? I know his name, but I didn't know I've ever listened to him. So I started listening backwards again, like from his latest stuff to his older stuff. And the first thing was I listened was I think. And I was like blown away from the honestly again and the vulnerability of the album from the minimalism, from simple ideas that are repetitive and that they have so much strength in them and character in his playing. And then I found this documentary about this, the creation of this called uh, Sakamoto Koda. And basically, this album was created, was recorded and created when he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And he said, like, he was, before he was diagnosed with cancer, he was recording something else. And when he, he was diagnosed, he felt like he deleted everything he was recording back. Then he started over again, to record a sync and just without thinking about it, he just wanted to do something very honest he wanted to do all the time. Hmm. So that's how this album came. And I saw some of the recording process as well from the documentary. 
and how he Sakamoto approaches music and all this kind of stuff. Like, I feel like he's like he's such a gentle person, and mm. with very like a calmness to it, but taking things slow. Some bits I don't have. I'm more like a, every day. I'm like a, so overwhelmed with my. Oh, multitasking, yeah. Oh, I have to do this and I do that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And he's like, take it slow, play the piano. I play one chord and I keep it for two minutes. <laughs> I play one chord and I keep it for two seconds. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, he was like, yeah, somehow his music. Of, of course, I love, I love that album and I love his music. But also, he was. I felt like he's a teacher for musicians and for me personally like is showcasing like taking a step back taking the pace slower and say hey give it a breath let it flow give it, leave plenty of room for each texture each note hmm. each composition to be heard out can if that thing when he was saying this kind of stuff and i was listening as well it reminded me of Katie Hino's in an interview in Redwood, I think. And I can't remember specifically. He had some sort of like in front of him uh, percussions. And the interviewer was asking him like how you use this percussion stuff. And he would like hit just one of the percussion and he would move his hand above the the timber, like the, the skin of the the drum mm. and it would make like a sort of like a tremolo vibrato and he and said like okay, if i was like a conventional music i would play the scales as fast as i can on this instrument but i'm just using saying the note and i'm like hearing the texture and how it vibrates in the environment and focusing on the on sound and the, all this kind of other elements of the music wow and that's, yeah and that's like how Sakamoto for me blends both of them. Like he has like this conventional classical music approach, but he's also deconstructing it and focusing on very minimal, subtle and details that are like very easy to miss if you are focused on how your brain brainwashed to listen to music and what to what kind of aspects of music are important. That's really interesting. I didn't realize there was a documentary as well about the making of this record. Um, it sounds like that that's given you a galvanized appreciation for how Sakamoto approaches music and that patience that you refer to. Is there Were there any other insights into how this record was made that really struck you? I mean, I read about the piece for Triangles called Try is like an oh, unedited yeah, yeah. performance of three triangles and these three musicians were spent ages trying to get it absolutely perfect and people misconstrued it as like a digital rendering of triangles but it's actually just three musicians doing it over and over again until they got it right so i wondered if there were like yeah insights that you got into the making of this record that made you comprehend it differently i think there were some sections he would like be recording some of the tracks but not like there were not many that kind of footage is in the documentary, but I remember like this, I don't know for which track it was, I think it was for Life Life, I think, or Triangle, I think. And uh, he takes one a, a really small 
Simban in the Antarctic, like in the snow, in the in the middle of nowhere, which is like totally silent, mm-hmm. and just hit it, and the the sound would travel between like the um, it would make like uh, reflections from the iceberg from here and there, and it would be so in peace when he would do that, just ding. Look how it sounds. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, star- I was blown away just because, like, how he's treating sound with na- nature, you know? Because mm. most of like similar musicians, they will just go out and just be the field recording. Oh, yeah, that's field recording. It's like the most expensive field recording and just put it in the album as a texture in the background. It's like, dude, this guy's like just eating one thing. He's living there for 20 minutes, just listening to just one hit and just waits to be recorded, you know? Wow. And another funny thing was he did, he would like, he took a piece of wood, he would attach the uh, Zoom recorder to it at the end, and he would dive it inside like a, a broken uh, uh, ground of like ice, but which was water running, it was very beautiful. Oh. and. I think it's one of the, in one of the tracks you, you can hear that, and he 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 steps back and he, he smiles at the camera and says, "I'm fishing the sound." That's <laughs> <laughs> so lovely. That's really nice. He um apparently as well the piano on one of these tracks was like a piano that had been saturated, had been like drowned in water from a tsunami as well um i can't yeah, remember yeah, which yeah, yeah. track that is but yeah you know it when you hear it it sounds like a very very broken piano um i mean what i think is becoming clear if people haven't heard the record is that it's funny that this record was the first one you heard after your friend recommended other piano players because piano does feature here but everything features here i mean i heard that sakamoto wanted to you know in light of the fact that uh, he'd been diagnosed with throat cancer he wanted to create a record that encompassed everything that he wanted to record as you say without you know too much thought so this this record is sprawling it goes in so many different directions I mean you've talked about um, bringing different genres together as being something that's of interest to you I mean was that an aspect of this record as well which uh, garnered some appeal for you the fact that it was bringing together so many different approaches sounds textures spaces yeah yeah for sure it uh, it was one of the aspects and uh, the surprising aspect as well like uh, from one track to another there was a lot of difference and it also had a lot of ele- electroacoustic approach to piano with like extended extended techniques mm. i was very much interested in experimenting back then when i was in 2020 when i listened to this album and his like uh, way of uh, the sounds and the way he plays the keyboard, keyboards and the piano, it reminded me to a certain degree, but not totally, of course. I hope somebody that I'm going to say won't uh, consider this blasphemy, <laughs> but it reminded <laughs> me a bit of Tom York's playing, in which I was really interested as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I get the impression that Tom York is very inspired by Sakamoto. There's that track that he did for Suspiria which sounds very much like a Sakamoto rip basically it sounds like a direct reference but um is there any track on async that you could 
call out as a favorite again it sounds like it feels like one of these records where and most records are where each piece is part of the puzzle so plucking one out seems a bit futile but are there any that that, that connect with you particularly strongly i think yes the track solari or solari mm. how it's the correct pronunciation which is like this uh very dramatic synth very simply which it's building up in a background orchestration of other voices of notes which was really interesting mm. and another one ubi which is a, a piano with like a signal from a satellite thing mm. that those two like were the my favorite ones but i think i would vote my favorite as solari because whenever i hear it i'm like stepping back from my anxiety my daily anxiety i'm like yeah sakamoto you're right life is beautiful <laughs> <laughs> back let's go to your final important record so again you can remind us what it is and then give us a little introduction as to why it's important to you okay yeah it's machine gears uvoid synthesizer i discovered this record in november now <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah basically i always knew machine gear but i would have i had never been have no i had never that ah, sorry i never had the chance to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to listen to Masinger, who these guys are, or who this guy is. But I had no idea who, what kind of thing. I only knew they were like on Orange Milk Records, which I have a connection because I've done a video clip for one of the artists, Digifay. Oh, cool. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like, okay, let's listen. So I... I don't know how I, I think I accidentally found this album. Like I didn't have like a way of like backboards or from old ones to new ones. I just went into their band camp and I saw this album like, okay, nice cover. Let's try, let's try this. Hmm. And yeah, I was super obsessed because of how many different genres that combining in just one track, not only in the yeah. entire album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And uh, all my friends and all my like uh, all other a lot of artists that know my work and are like, you are like very maximalistic in your approach. And I listened to that album and I was like, I am maximalistic. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't know your shit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I sent this album to a couple of friends of mine who play like. Uh, like metal and electronic music and I sent them to this three and like I met I bumped on them someday like afterwards in the street and I was like hey did you listen to that album I sent you and like dude what the fuck was that <laughs> <laughs> it was as if I was trying to listen to 10 genres at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 besides um, that I find like this uh like this person who producer Matt Stephenson, like I find him like 
very creative and important like in music and for me one one of the other things that i have this, this kind of sentimental connection with albums and music it's like uh since like, I, when i was growing up since i was like uh i'm not i live in greece but i'm not greek and i'm officially but i wasn't back then and i was from iran and I am from Iran as well, <laughs> and I was uh, marginalized a lot with, by my friends. I was bullied. I was uh, just not on, not only due to my origins, but on, I, as well for other reasons, like for not being, for not uh, fulfilling the heteronormative social bias of what a male person should do, be mm-hmm. like, and what kind of things we must be into. So I spent a lot of time alone. And back, it was when internet was coming to be something. So I discovered a lot of artists. And honestly, if these kind of artists, these creative artists, hadn't like released their stuff publicly and wouldn't be access to them, I don't think like uh, I would have survived in that period of time. So yeah, hmm. that's how I feel like about my singer. Like, it's very important like it might save some people's lives like it you know what i mean (laughs) like yeah yeah. it's like something very unique something very odd something very avant-garde but something very accessible to people that feel like this kind of music you know like Mm -hmm. yeah i listen to that and I, i i saw myself in this album although i might not be creating it as artists, uh, artistically speaking, like in this kind of level, this maximalism and this blending of so many genres in such a good way. But I saw myself in it. I was like, being myself, I was t- t- talking to Machine Girls, like, thank you for having the guts to release this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you've brought up so much, which is interesting to me there, that I want to kind of make an observation and see whether or not this is resonates with you in any way but one thing I noticed with an interview with I believe it was uh, Stevenson, is it Stephenson? Stevenson um, where they talked about growing up and having parents who expected them to you know become I think the reference that they mentioned was like a, a successful jazz musician proper musician's job you know so there was this expectation that was imposed upon them and then they you know, ended up doing this. And this has, you know, this record and Machine Girl has this very deliberate, messy, mangling, ugly quality, which feels like a real middle finger to that expectation to be coherent and quote-unquote functional um, within, as you say, like a, a heteronormative and, and sort of capitalist appeasing way. Um, your records as well have this I think and I mean this as a compliment but like a messiness which um, feels very akin to that there's a deliberate scrambling of logics and capitalist logics which I think feels very present in your work so is is that do you think a reason why you have some affinity with Machine Girl this kind of deliberate kind of almost confrontational messiness yeah yeah for sure like uh and they also have a great uh, sense of humor in the record. Like they don't, mm. they don't uh, bite. They just go for it. You know what I mean? Mm. And yeah, that's it's like the middle finger, like to society and the oppression 
one is experiencing just because of how things should be mm. and in life nothing should be <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah yeah for sure but yeah for sure and um, i mentioned like this album i picked it up as a who i want to be like a, a future path i want to go on i really want to have the grindcore death metal thing like extreme metal vibe with my electronic stuff and machine does that so well so um, that's why i picked it up as a the future thing wow so that's where you think you're headed with your upcoming material yeah i hope so (laughs) (laughs) but not of course like in this without vocals of course and uh, not uh in this uh, really extremity as well like Uh, as i said like if i try to copy i'll fail so badly it becomes something else (laughs) that's great um have you got a favorite track on this record um, I think you suck shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. And uh, and another one was like uh, Oncoming, I think. These two tracks I really love. But I think suck shit was like really, really my favorite one. And it reminded me of one of my, uh, another favorite artists, which was also like a fuck you world kind of vibe, uh, which is uh, Zach Hill. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. It reminded me some of his solo works, which I was really into, and I still am. And Jackie has been like a huge inspiration for me. And, and and when I was listening to that track, I was thinking to myself, "Wow, Stephenson should make an album with Jackie playing drums." <laughs> But back, this has been amazing. I've loved speaking to you about these records uh, and your new record, the new exhibition as well. Like I say, people, please do check out Mind Flaying Flavoured Flails and the accompanying virtual exhibition. It's super. Um, one other question I want to ask at this point is about how you listen to, or rather how you purchase music, how you bring music into your life. Like, is there a preferred format? Are there places that you tend to get your music from? Give me a little insight as to what that looks like for you. Well, it depends. Like some of the artists I listen to, they don't have like uh, the stuff on uh, streaming services. So I would listen either on Bandcamp from there or SoundCloud. I sometimes buy some of the records from there Mm. uh, to support them. But I mostly, because I... All day I'm like uh, outside, out of home, and I'm a person who wants to be listening to music in his headphones because I cannot stand other people's bullshit stuff talking in the buses <laughs> or in uh-huh. I don't care about their private lives; they are talking so loud. So I used I used to have Apple Music because I did have a iPhone, right? And but I, then I stopped having because. It was a crisis, I think, regarding Apple 
music. And I switched to Spotify, which I feel really bad about because it's uh, very controversial and it doesn't support artists. I don't have my own stuff up there. Mm-hmm. And I'm, pr- I'm planning to move from there to Apple Music because I think it's, much, it's not that bad. Uh-huh. What I did when I was a kid, I would uh, buy all this kind, what, whatever album I could buy, I would buy, and whatever album which was not available for me, like uh, old stuff and more like uh, 90s and so on, I would download them and I, would, I had made like a library of around 200 gigabytes of all these albums, <laughs> labels, wow. genres, and all stuff. Yeah. And I, that, I did that, I think, three times in my life because the laptop would break down. And I had to sit down and again do that and again and then. But now I'm a, I'm almost into the adult life. I'm not yet. And I don't have the time to do and the luxury to do that. So I'm I'm succumbing to the to my vulnerability of laziness and uh, using streaming services, unfortunately, and I feel guilty about it. Well, Babak, thank you so much. It's been wicked speaking with you. Really grateful for your time and energy and for bringing these records in as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye.